Would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 6. And if you can, would you stand, please? Here's a well-known passage. Here's the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of His strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. I also take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God, praying at all times with all prayers and petitions in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. As well as on my behalf, the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the, with boldness the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. So then proclaiming, the gospel, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You may be seated. Father, we humble ourselves before your voice. We need you to teach us as we are singing, Speak, O Lord. And as little Samuel Said, speak, O Lord, that your servant is listening. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be a, a faithful slave and vessel. This is a, an important subject, and, and, and so many of us here need your word to help us to understand it, Lord. So please help us. Father, I want to pray for this body, pray for other churches in the area. We pray that your people would be growing into Christ's likeness today. In Jesus' name, amen. After talking to so many of you, one thing that kept being repeated was the theme of war, battle, spiritual warfare. Who among us this morning have tasted and experienced an arduous 
agonizing state of spiritual warfare this past few weeks. Uh, some of you I know had never experienced such struggle before. Many have wept, felt exhausted, and hurt by these past weeks. And those are all signs of engagement in battle. Amen? So, it's in light of this reality that I think would be good for us as a church to look at what the Word of God says about spiritual warfare. Because that's not the first one and it will not be the last one. A church that strives for holiness, a church that's always pursuing to glorify God, a church that's grounded in His Word and unwilling to compromise, will be often attacked. Therefore, we need to be instructed as a church in how to deal with the attacks of the enemy and also to know how we fight and the standpoint from where we are fighting. Amen? So, the first thing would be a proper, a proper biblical balance of the subject of spiritual warfare. This topic is, when you talk about spiritual warfare, you usually have thoughts and ideas that come to your mind, things that you were taught before. And in the Christian church, usually you have two extremes. The, the one extreme is the overemphasizing giving more weight than what the Bible actually emphasized. And the other one, the other extreme is de-emphasizing and ignoring what the Bible actually states to be real. Uh, I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Those are the two extremes that we have in the church. One extreme, and that's from where I come from, my background after I got saved. And that's where you see everything coming out of Satan. So everything is coming out of Satan. So if the... Microwave breaks, you blame Satan for the microwave. And if you run out of gas, you blame Satan. It's not your fault they didn't put gas in the car. It's Satan's fault. So, you have this extreme where everything is demonic, everything is satanic. Virtually everything that takes place is attributed to Satan. And certainly this type of theology is built more on Books, similar to Frank Ferretti's books, and others, than on the scriptures. Uh, David Paulson, he says, A great deal of fiction, superstition, fantasy, nonsense, nuttiness, and downright heresy flourishes in the church under the guise of spiritual warfare in our time. The problem is theology here, because suddenly you start placing Satan as more powerful than, than, than God himself. And that's something that I experienced, is that suddenly 
Satan has more power, equal power, and become like Star Wars. You have the evil force and the good force, and they're equal. And that's not what the Bible talks about. So the other extreme, and that's especially among us Reformed churches, is just to ignore the reality of spiritual warfare. As if there is no such thing as demonic activity. So I know people, especially in Reformed circles, and in particular in America, where they think that demonic activity and satanic forces, that was in the first century. Now we are done with that. And that's exactly what Satan loves to do. Cause people to stop believing that. So, we need solely scripture. We need the Bible alone to instruct us and help us understand the subject and, and, and put in proper balance. Let, let me just ask, who among us here have been to churches where they had courses on spiritual warfare and you have been to seminaries about spiritual warfare? Okay, good. Uh, I'd say the most contemporary Christian view in America is that the Christian life is free of struggles and battles. That's what they want to sell. It's a Christianity that's free from struggles and battles. They, they basically paint the, the Christian life as a picnic at the park on a sunny day. And you come to Jesus and all your struggles are going to be over. And, and it's done. So, that's why you have so many books sold by Joe Osteen and Joyce Mayer and this type of people. And so many churches too keep teaching this idea that Christianity is free from pain and suffering and persecution. I like what J.C. Ryle writes. He says, there are thousands of men, and that's back in his day. Imagine now. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches every Sunday. And they call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy men, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable, but it certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion that the Lord Jesus founded and the apostles preached. It's not the religion that produces real holiness. True Christianity is what? Is a fight. The Christian life, according to the Scriptures, is a life of struggle and suffering and affliction. And of course, under God's mercy and grace, there are wonderful seasons that we can relax and enjoy peace. But for Paul, one of his favorite metaphors for the Christian life is the metaphor of warfare. Paul is often talking about the Christian life with the metaphors using the examples of battle and warfare. Think about the terminology of salvation. We, we, we use salvation. Saved. Are you saved? 
Right? We always talk about saved. Are you saved? But what is salvation? Saved. The whole language of salvation was military language. You are saved from an enemy. To be saved means that you are saved, you are rescued from your enemy. And who is the greatest enemy of mankind outside Christ? God Himself. His wrath. So to be saved is first of all to be saved from God's holy wrath. And God is pictured throughout this scripture as a holy warrior. Ready for battle. So that's very important to think. Oh, when you talk about salvation. Salvation is language of war. Being saved. Being rescued from your enemy. Before we were saved. We belonged to the kingdom of darkness. And this kingdom is ruled by Satan and his servants. His servants are called unclean spirits. Demons. And then you think that's outside. And inside we were ruled and governed by sin. Sin is pictured as a tyrannic king ruling our lives. All language of war. Kingdom of darkness. Sin as a tyrannical king over us. And though Jesus delivered us from that, there is something that remains. We're going to see as, as we move on in this study. But... Our battles are now with Satan and sin. The remaining sin in our lives. So, I would say that we fight from the sin point of victory. The scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ through his life, death and resurrection has conquered us from the kingdom of darkness, defeated Satan and delivered us from the tyranny of sin. Amen? That's why the Bible is clear. The Bible is very clear about that. Sin and Satan no longer reign over our lives. Think about Jesus' ministry of healing and deliverance. A lot of times we, we, we look at the, the accounts of Jesus' healing and his accounts of his exorcism, delivering people from demons, but that's all war language. Every time Jesus is healing, he's actually delivering someone from the enemy. That's death. Every time he's Delivering someone from demonic activity, he's releasing that person from whom? Satan. So every time Jesus cast out a demon, every time he healed the sick or raised the dead, he was assaulting the kingdom of darkness. Jesus was entering, as he says, the strong man's house, binding him with his superior strength and plundering his stolen property. Amen? And this battle between Jesus and the kingdom of darkness is introduced to us very early in the scriptures. Where is the first time that we hear about this battle between the Messiah, the seed of the woman, and the serpent? Yes, Genesis 3.15. That's the first time that we are informed about this battle, and the language is a language of warfare. The Lord says, I will put enmity, hate, Hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and who? Her seed. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. There is the promise of a bloody and fatal battle between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Right in Genesis. And from there on, the Bible becomes a, a story of war. We know through God's revelation and our own experience, that's important, not just God's revelation, but our own experience, that Jesus has already conquered Satan. We have been set free. Satan is chained by Christ's victory. So, for example, Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumph over them in the cross. Or Revelation 1.5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and what? The ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and what? Has freed us from our sins by his blood. Or Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And then Colossians 1.13, Paul tells us that salvation implies an exchange of allegiance. Look at it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. All these things have been accomplished. Amen? They have been accomplished. Not just future, we are hoping. No, it has already happened. Amen? And I know, I know many of you, and I know by personal life experience, that you have been set free from the power of Satan and the domain of sin. Your lives is a reflection of the truths of we know here. Amen? And, but here is important for us to stop. And there comes those theological labels that it's important for us. And one is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Or already and not yet. And here's where eschatology is very important. Eschatology is they study the doctrine of the last things. And it's crucial for us to understand how God is working between the inauguration and the consummation of all things. So we must say amen. We must stand together and agree and say amen to the great and glorious truth that we already have the victory of, over Satan and sin. We must say yes, we are ready more than conquerors in Christ. Yes, we have been set free from the power and the rule of sin. Yes, Jesus has conquered the war. Amen. But at the same time, we are told that the consummation and the glorification of all things have not taken place yet. Amen? We still struggle with sin. Even though sin no longer reigns over us, there is still remaining sin. Satan, though he is limited in his power, he still attacks the church. Inflicts God's people with Sorrow and accusation. So, you have this, yes, amen, but we are still waiting towards the end, the consummation of all things. So, we are living in this time where God 
through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, has inaugurated all these blessings of salvation, and yet, it has not bring the consummation of those things. That's, that's, that's the time we are living, brothers and sisters. And that's important to understand spiritual warfare and how we fight. Uh, Andrew Nastelli, he writes, Right now, we are living in that time between D-Day and V-E-Day. He's borrowing the metaphor of World War. Remember D-Day, the inauguration of victory, until the last day when it was the final victory. So he says, Jesus has already won the victory, but he has not yet consummated. The kingdom is already, but also not yet. And like Adolf Hitler, after D-Day, the dragon is raging because he knows he doesn't have long. Revelation 12, 2. He knows that Christ has decisively defeated him, so he's taking his rage on Christ's church by attempting to deceive them with lies and false teachings, just like a snake, and to devour them with persecution, just like a dragon. That's the time we are. He knows his time is short. He hates the Lord Jesus. Therefore, he attacks whom? His church, his bride, his people. So the day is coming, according to Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. But until that time comes, the Bible is very clear that we must be doing what? Being watchful, alert, wrestling, fighting, because we have a battle. So, amen. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. But the king of the kingdom of darkness, the prince of this dark kingdom, Satan, is angry with his loss and knows his time is short. Therefore, he tries with all his, and that's important, constrained and limited power, and that's by God, to destroy the church and take back the prisoners of war. That's the time we are, brothers and sisters. The lion is in chains, or better, the dragon. But even a lion in chains can cause much damage. Amen? And that's what we see taking place. Think about our baptism. We recently were able to see Jaren being baptized. And think about baptism, that beautiful act when we publicly declare our allegiance to Jesus. So there is a positive and a negative aspect of baptism. The positive is that we are marked as children of God. As we publicly go into those waters and receive the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are being marked as children of God through baptism. It's public. We are showing our allegiance to Jesus, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of light, but at the same time, as we are publicly declaring our allegiance to Jesus, we are negatively being marked by whom? The kingdom of darkness. We have rebels, enemies in different camps. William Garnell, in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, who here has read the book, The Christian in Complete Armor? It's a 
great book by a Puritan, and the whole book is about the Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Uh, in his book, he began addressing the war between the saints and Satan. It is so bloody a one that the cruelest, the most cruel, which was ever fought by man, will be found but sport and child's play by comparison. That's how he talks about the contrast between the battle, the spiritual warfare that takes place in the spiritual realm in contrast with what we see taking place in earthly realm. So, the invitation that we often hear, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and all your problems will fade away. Come to Jesus and you will be happy. We've got to be always careful with that because I know that many of us here came to Jesus and suddenly we start having more problems than we had before. New problems. New struggles. And also our eyes were open to see something that the natural eyes would never see. And that's the spiritual dimension. This war, this cruel war that's taking place. And the Lord used this spiritual battle. We are going to talk more about that. But the, the Lord used these spiritual battles to sanctify His church. And to unify His people. Amen. It sanctifies the church. And unifies His people. One commentator said, sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is, apart from the Lord Jesus. So, as we think about the subject of spiritual warfare, the greater, think about that, the greater our devotion is to the Lord Jesus the greater our affection towards Christ, the greater our love for the church, the greater our pursuit to maintain the unity of the church, the deeper our affections for the Lord Jesus grows, the more faithful we are to the sound and faithful exposition of the Word of God, guess what? The greater will be the opposition. If we are not bothering, irritating, and infuriating the kingdom of darkness, then Satan will not bother and attack us. The less we irritate the army of the, army of the serpents, the less we will know about spiritual warfare. The more we strive as a church to be faithful, to not compromise with the word of God, the more we as a church strive to walk in holiness, Church discipline, excommunication, faithful preaching, preserving the unity. Guess what? Do you think we're going to be more and more comfortable? We're going to be more and more attacked. And praise the Lord. Because I don't want to be a church that's not attacked by Satan. A church that does not receive attack from Satan is a church that's not bothering the kingdom of hell. In Acts 19.15, we hear the demons saying, Oh, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? Do you remember that? The sons of Stephen? 
We don't want that. We want Satan and the demons to know, I know that church. I know those guys. One pastor says, Is Satan concerned about your prayers that move the spirit to action, your holiness that upgrades your family and church community, your evangelistic work that depopulates hell, your preaching or teaching that humbles and debases men while exalting and praising Jesus? Are you known in hell? Is Satan upset with you? Does he have his target painted on your mind, heart, and will? Is hell being adversely affected by your life and ministry? These are the questions that ought to be periodically addressed by each of us, but especially by those of us who earn our living by preaching. For all of us as a church, are we knowing hell? Do we bother the kingdom of darkness? Do we, we as a church infuriate the kingdom of darkness because of our commitment to the Lord Jesus? So, I hope we will be a church that's always striving to be known in hell. Amen? A church that's known in the kingdom of darkness. That irritates it. Our love for Christ, our love for one another, our love for holiness. Therefore, we must learn about spiritual warfare. We need to know. We need to know about our enemy. We need to know about his schemes. We need to know how to fight. And we need to know who we are and who is for us. And that's why I think Ephesians 6 is going to help us very much in this journey. So, as we go to Ephesians 6, the letter to the Ephesians is a beautiful letter. It's, I love the, the book. One of the major themes in Ephesians is the church. Paul has been addressing the importance of the church in this letter to the Ephesians. And one of his major concerns is the unity of the church. So Paul used different metaphors to talk about the church. And he comes to this final exhortation. And he paints a picture of the church as an army. Showing that an army requires unity. And also to show them that their fight is not against each other. And it's not against the Roman Empire, but they have a different type of enemy. Ephesians 6 cannot be read outside its context. Okay, and that's important. Especially think about chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3 is just this beautiful declaration of all the blessings and benefits and glories that we have in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 1. Look with me to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Look at all the blessings that we have. First of all, grace to you and peace from God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us. Look at that. All, all the blessings we have. Just as He chose us before the foundation of the world, they would be holy and blameless before Him by predestining us to adoptions as sons. So He goes and He talks about all the blessings that we have. Chapter 2, also how God has raised us up and seated us in the heavenlies with Jesus 
So you have all these glorious things, and that's important. They are ready, but not yet. So when you come to chapter 6, yes, we have all these things, but we still have battles to fight. And also it helps us because we are fighting this battle from the standpoint of being already seated with Jesus. The victory is ours. So look at verse 10. Philippians, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And here's the command. And I just want to walk through verse 10 as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So he says, Finally, or well then, well then, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord. That's the ESV. And you see that we have uh, the verb there. You have uh, a passive voice with an imperative. And uh, many of us, when you were studying grammar at school, we could care less about passive voice and but you see how important it is when you're studying the Bible. And for us parents, it's important to teach the kids that grammar is vital in understanding the Scriptures. And the passive voice is very important. Because the passive means what? That's something done on our behalf. Something accomplished for us. So, the use of the passive voice here reminds the Ephesians that although this strength is necessary in order to withstand the forces of evil, it's nothing that the Ephesians can really do for themselves. It's coming from a different source. But then you have the imperative. That's amazing how Paul puts together an imperative with a passive. One, one way of translating that is, be strengthened or be empowered, become strengthened in the Lord. And the imperative reminds us that though the power comes ultimately from the Lord, we must actively and aggressively pursue this strength and power. So we have this, as always in the Bible, it's God's doing and then our responsibility to work it out. The Old Testament here is when you, when you hear the words, be strong, who do you think about in the Old Testament? Joshua, right? Be strong and courageous. And that's exactly where Paul is drawing these words. So, one scholar says, the language here evokes the memory of God's repeatedly calling Joshua to be strong. As he was about to lead God's people into the land of Canaan where they would face many enemies and fight many battles. The difference now, however, is that God's people face more powerful enemies than the mere or the only human opponents. Huh. There's a beautiful text in Zechariah, in Zechariah 10, as he's speaking about the, the new exodus as God's people to be brought out of exile and speaking about the new covenant and says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior 
And then in verse 12 says, I will make them strong in whom? In the Lord. I will make them strong in the Lord. It's the Lord making them strong in the Lord. So Paul now applies all these Old Testament texts to the church as we face our battles. And you see the, the source of our strength and empowerment, ability, is where? Where? In the Lord. Remember when you were walking through Philippians, how often Paul used in the Lord, in Him, in Jesus, in Christ. Do you know why? For Paul, that's the best way of defining a Christian. Paul doesn't use the terminology Christian. He used in Him, in Jesus, in the Lord. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. And that's what we have here. And it's fascinating when you study the, the background, how people in those days thought that they could achieve power and strength. Clinton Arnold, he said, the people of this area in Ephesus are well aware of spiritual power. And you know that when you read Acts, you remember Acts 19, so many of the demonic activities in Ephesus. So they knew very well about spiritual powers. The people of this area are well aware of spiritual power, but they have been accustomed to receiving it from the wrong means. Through helpers, spirits, incantations, rituals, formulas, and calling on their gods or goddesses. God desires to strengthen His people through a dynamic relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. How about here in America? How do you try to find empowerment? What is the way the Americans think that they can be empowered? Isn't that through self-sufficiency? I can do on my own. Autonomy. It's my way. Money. Numbers. That's how we think we can achieve power. It's very similar to any other pagan idea of achievement of strength and power. So, Paul tells us, well then, be empowered. Be strengthened in the Lord. And this word here that Paul used, be strengthened and do not move, four other times Paul used this word, and it's important for us to see. So, for example, in Romans 4 20, Paul says, But Abraham grew strong. That's the same verb there in his faith as he gave glory to God. Or Philippians 4 13, I can do all things in him. And that's the same verb. First Timothy 1.12 I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Second Timothy 2.1 But then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 4.17 Paul is using the same verbs here. But the Lord stood by me and He strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. So the idea behind this concept of being empowered in the Lord is not one where you can break bricks with your forehead or bench press 500 pounds. Be strong in the Lord. Be strengthened in the Lord. He's not talking about this type of strength and power. No, it's a power for the church to be content in the midst of suffering. It's power to be bold in the midst of persecution. And it's power to be faithful under trial. That's what Paul is talking about. The strength that we need. Same, very similar 
verb that Jesus used in John 15 when he says, Apart from me, you are powerless. You can do nothing. You have no power to do anything. Henry Francis, in his hymn, he says, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and strength can be? Though cloud and sunshine, oh, abide with me. So, the only source of power and strength is the Lord Jesus. And he says, be strong in the Lord. And then he says, and in the strength of his might. And Paul is just adding synonyms here. It's hard to know that the words, how these words are there, is there a difference? So you, you read different translations and you have different ways of reading this. So, for example, one translation says, finally become strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. It's just the opposite of the ESV translation because they're very similar. But what is key for us to understand is how Paul used the same two Greek words for strength and might earlier in the text. So, turn with me to Ephesians 1 and you're going to and that's going to help us to understand what Paul is talking about here about this power and the great might that's in the Lord so Paul he's praying for the Ephesians that their eyes would be open so they can know what is the immeasurable greatness of his what? power towards us who believe according to the working of his and then he used the same two words that he's using in Ephesians 10, 6.10 Look at that. His great might. His great might. And now you understand what Paul is talking about. What great might is that? Look at that. Towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when? When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly place. For Paul, when he's talking about be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, he's referring the strength of his might to that same resurrection power that brought Jesus out of the grave and seated him in the heavens. And he's saying that same power is available for the church. Just like Jesus conquered Satan and the last enemy, death, through that mighty power that's available for the church to keep fighting. When Paul thinks about the strength of God's might, when Paul thinks about the might of God's strength, when his mind goes to the superpower of God, he's not thinking about creation, first of all. He's not thinking about the exodus, first of all. He's not thinking about the flood, first of all. He's not thinking about the deliverance from the Babylonian captivity, first of all. Paul's, when he, if you ask Paul, Paul, talk to us about the mighty strength, the mighty power of God, and he would Tell you about the resurrection of Christ. The greatest display of the mighty power of God was in raising Jesus, conquering our greatest enemy, and raising him to be seated in the heavenlies. And similarly, Paul used the same, same theology in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as 
rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And look how he says, that I may know Him and what? The power of what? The power, not of His creation, not of His redemption, but the power of His resurrection. As F. Bruce writes, if the love of God is supremely demonstrated in the death of Christ, His power is supremely demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. And those who are united by faith with the risen Christ have this power imparted to them. That power is like the work of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. It's the power which, among other things, enables the believer to ignore the dictates or enticements of sin, and to lead a life of holiness, holiness which pleases God. Amen? So as we are approaching the Lord's table, and we are preparing to partake of the elements, it's so important for us to see this. That our strength, our empowerment, our enablement to stand as a church, to gather against these schemes of the devil, against these fiery darts, is only found in communion with the Lord. It's because of our union with Christ that we can enjoy communion with Him. So when Paul talks here about in the Lord, he's talking about what he sees as a vital understanding of the Christian life and life in general. For Paul, there are only two races Adamic race and the Christian race. There is no black, white, Greek, barbarians, rich, poor. For Paul, there are just two races. And that's the one in Adam and one in whom? In Christ. The in implies that you are under that person. To be in Adam means that you are under the domain of Satan, because Adam, what happened to Adam? He was conquered by the serpent. He was taken as a subject into the kingdom of darkness and was conquered by the serpent. And now the last Adam, the greater Adam, what did he do with the serpent? He crushed the serpent. He conquered the serpent. And those who are in him are no longer under Satan, but under this domain of life. Amen? I, I love what Chapel, Brian Chapel writes. He says, We are in Him, covered by His blood, robed in His righteousness, members of His household, sons and daughters in union with Him. Beloved, we may dread the exposure of our weakness in our battle against sin, but the Apostle reminds us that the strength of our relationship with our God is provided by Christ. Because we are in Him, we have access to a power that's greater than we. Amen? So the Lord Jesus has enlisted us, has drafted us into His army, to His kingdom. And as we are partaking, going to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's important for us to remember that there was a time in our lives when we were not in Christ. There was a time in our lives when we were not in Him. And we could not go to Him to find strength. 
Paul says in Ephesians 2, the same book, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, meaning captivity to Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and then he adds himself. Don't think uh, just because I was a Jewish man, I was out of this circle. No, no, no. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, what? Children of wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. And then he continues, you move on to verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, He made us alive with Christ, and raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus and then Paul goes on to say that we were recreated in Christ Jesus for good battles. We say good works, but another translation could be good battles in Him. So, every time, every time we come to the Lord's table, we must remember, one of the names for the Lord's table is what? Communion. We call that communion. What is communion? Communion. It's this fellowship derived from our union together. So because we have been united, we can celebrate that. That's communion. The communion of the saints. The communion. And that's what the Lord used to empower us, to strengthen us. When we come to the table to celebrate our communion, we remember and proclaim that the blood of Jesus Christ has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. His blood has purchased us from Satan's tyrannical rule over us. And at the same time, we are reminded that we still have battles. But through this fellowship, through this communion, the Lord is strengthening us and empowering us. So, don't ever take communion for granted. It's one of God's beautiful means to strengthen His church. Because it's done in the communion of the saints. We celebrate the supper during the worship service. And it's the worship service when we gather together to sing, to hear His Word, to build each other up. That's when the Lord is strengthening us. Empowering us. The bread and the cup declare that we have been united to Jesus Christ. And because of our union with the conqueror, we are more than conquerors in Him. So you think about Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And now it's all war language. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Look at Paul says, no, in all these things, in, not outside them, not over them, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Look how he says, for I'm sure that neither death, the greatest enemy, right? Death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that, that's vital for us as we fight, as we stand together, as we face spiritual warfare, to understand that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We fight from the standpoint of victory. But that doesn't mean that we must not be alert, watchful, 
and take up the full armor. Martin Luther, in his well-known, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he says, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus asked, who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. It's His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. So as we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the fact that we are sitting together with what Luther says, the right man on our side. We come to the table, the table of the right man on our side, the Lord of hosts. Amen. Father, we, we love you. We thank you that you are so kind and merciful in saving us and rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness. And you, and you also prepare us. You prepare us for battles. You instruct us and teach us about the importance of being a church that is alert, grounded in your word. So help us. And as we saw here in Ephesians 6, 10, we are strengthened. We become empowered by fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And as we prepare to partake of the communion, I pray that you'd be working us the might of your strength. The same power that raised Jesus, conquering the enemies, that would be working among us and in us as a church, Lord. So we may withstand the attacks of Satan upon our church. And I pray that our church would be a church well-known in hell, Lord. Help us to walk in holiness, love, purity, devotion, zeal, so that Satan may often come after us, Lord. We need your grace, we need your mercy. And we pray your blessing upon the elements. In Jesus' name. Amen.